And so uh, I think we'll get started right away um, with Dr. Rafi Landovitz. Rafi is a professor of medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Um, he is by far uh, one of the top uh, five leaders in PrEP uh, around the world. He's led a lot of the original studies on PrEP, um, and he's going to take us through the science as it exists today, and I can't think of anybody else to do it better. Uh, Rafi, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? I'll assume yes, um, since I'm not getting any messages that, that folks can't. So it's a tremendous honor to be here with you all today and great to see so many um, friends um, and colleagues in uh, making comments already in the chat. Um, and I just wanna uh, begin by saying what a tremendous honor it is to lead off this conference um, in memory of Scott Hammer, who was one of my mentors in network science early on in, in my career. And um, I, I wanna just echo, uh, not a kinder, wiser, more wonderful individual can anyone ever hope to interact with. So just want to echo those comments. So we're going to very briefly today go over where the state of prep science is. Um, these are my disclosures. These are today's learning objectives. And those of you who have heard me speak before know that this is one of my favorite slides. And I first created this back in 2015 when I was trying to conceptualize how to get us all on the same page with where um, the efficacy trials for PrEP were, and, and with the idea that if you just put up a table of results, people sort of immediately sort of glaze their eyes over and start checking their email and their Instagram. Um, so the idea here is um, I grew up in the Northeast of the US where sort of around the holiday times, houses of worship do a lot of philanthropic fundraising and, 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 um, and put up their progress in their fundraising for charitable donation. Um, as a thermometer outside of the house of worship, and they fill up that thermometer with sort of um, a, a colored uh, a coloring that um, that suggests the mercury of a thermometer to tell how well they're getting towards their their goals. And that's the conceit here: the the shape of the the character in each of these trial result slides um, is the sex at birth of the population that was studied, and how filled up the character is as the point estimate of of the efficacy um, of, of the intervention agent. And I think what's clear from all this is number one, I wanted to pay tribute to Jean-Michel Molina and uh, the French and Canadian investigators in the Ypergay study in, in number seven there, um, uh, but uh, that there was a lot of variability um, in the initial trial results that led to confusion and consternation on behalf of both consumers and providers until we really um, appreciated that what these really were were um, effectiveness studies and not efficacy studies and really reflected the way in which people took a product and if you don't take a product it doesn't work and there's different forgiveness levels um, based on at least for tenofovir based prep um, the the compartment that you're trying to protect with more forgiveness um, to miss doses or non-adherence when you're trying to protect the rectal compartment as compared to the cervical vaginal compartment. Um, and you'll notice that there's some blank space on this slide, and that's because we're going to fill that in with what some people have termed PrEP 2.0 and even PrEP 3.0. So we'll come back to this. So the first thing I want to briefly talk about is tenofovir alafenamide. And this is, some people call this new tenofovir. And 
in people living with HIV, tenofovir alafenamide as part of antiretroviral therapy, it's been shown to be less renally toxic and more, more um, less bone toxic um, uh, as part of um, HIV treatment regimens um, for people living with HIV. And that's presumed to be based on at least the mechanism shown on this slide, where um, the tenofovir alafenamide in the lighter blue here it's an ester that falls apart into active tenofovir um, only when it is intracellular or largely, overwhelmingly when it's intracellular. So you get 90% lower plasma or serum levels of the active tenofovir metabolite floating around in the blood, which is presumed to then bathe kidneys and bones and lead to some of the, um, the signature toxicities of tenofovir-based treatment. Um, and it still uh, maintains uh, robust antiviral activity for those living with HIV. In contrast, sort of in the purple, um, tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate or old tenofovir um, uh, falls apart um, uh, to the active tenofovir metabolite largely and overwhelmingly in the blood plasma compartment, um, leading to the additional toxicity. And of course, the question was, um, would um, efficacy be the same in a PrEP context? And would these clear safety benefits for people living with HIV translate to the prevention space? And I think everyone is aware at this time that the DISCOVER trial was a randomized, um, uh, active controlled um, uh, uh, non-inferiority trial of FTAF versus FTDF that was done in MSM and transgender women in the United States, Canada, and Europe. Um, and uh, these were the 48 and 96 week results. It was a clear non-inferiority result, although the point estimates for HIV incidence were lower in the FTAF arm compared to the FTDF arm. Um, uh, it did not, um, it met the criteria for non-inferiority, which in this case was a 62% non-inferiority margin. Um, uh, although the point estimates were in favor of FTAF. And in terms of safety, um, these are the 48 and 96 week DEXA results that suggest more favorable outcomes for the FTAF treated participants compared to the FTDF uh, treated participants. There was not a difference in clinical fracture events, but of course, two years of follow-up would not really be a horizon in which you would expect to see um, the dif those differences in clinical outcomes. So I think this is a space we need to watch carefully to understand if there are long-term clinical bone, and we'll come to in a second, renal benefits um, uh, to FTAF as opposed to FTDF. I think as many on this um, webinar are aware, um, FTAF is now FDA approved in the US for pre-exposure prophylaxis for all routes of exposure except for vaginal routes. Um, and interestingly, the European well, let me rephrase. The Gilead has made a decision not to pursue licensure for pre-exposure prophylaxis for this product in Europe um, uh, for a presumed um, sort of uh, non-agreement in the European community that there is or is likely to be um, a clinical benefit and, and there is a profound cost difference, um, at least of FTAF compared with generic versions of FTDF. Um, so stay tuned for more about this. These are the renal results at 48 and 96 weeks between the two arms. Um, again, the color conventions are the same, suggesting um, um, a sensitive biomarker advantage to the FTAF-treated 
participants compared to the FTDF treated participants, um, but um, limited um, evidence for clinical benefits, even at the 96 week time of follow up. Where this has really left us is a conversation about whether people with pre-existing renal dysfunction or pre-existing bone disease or non-traumatic fractures um, would be the right candidates or people at risk um, for those conditions um, uh, in whom to either leverage um, FTAF, at least where it has regulatory approvals in the pre-exposure prophylaxis context, um, or to um, or to monitor more carefully and consider switching. I would point out that FTAF is approved for creatinine clearances um, down to 30 as opposed to FTDF, which um, recommends non-use once a creatinine clearance goes below 60. So um, I just want to very briefly show this infographic that Julia Marcus, formerly of Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, and now of Harvard created, and she pushed it out on Twitter, and I love it. And I, I, had, I apologize to our non-US colleagues. Um, this is does have US pricing on it, but it um, it's something that's that I use a lot when patients come into my clinic, having said, I saw a commercial for FTAF and I want to go on FTAF or my friend said I should be on FTAF. Um, and I, what I tell them is I don't have a horse in this race. Um, I, and uh, there are considerations on both sides. Um, and for some pill size is a big issue. And I do think that is an important differentiator between the two products um, for whom we have data and therefore regulatory approvals is different between the agents. Um, I mentioned the, the creatinine clearance and the bone mineral density issues you can see down the center of this slide, um, but there are also differences in terms of LDL change over the horizon that's been studied with a drop in LDL cholesterol in those given FTDF and a small increase um, in LDL in those given FTAF and then also difference in weight gain. Um, net even um, in the FTDF space and about a 1.1 kilogram per year increase in the FTAF space, um, which um, to be fair is not clearly different from placebo um, in other studies and other control groups, um, which raises the question of whether or not this is TAF actually leading to weight gain or a weight suppressive effect on the part of FTDF. Notwithstanding, there are these differences. And I will share with you anecdotally, and I'd love to hear in the chat from all of you and perhaps in the Q&A, Every time I've had this nuanced a conversation with someone who um, absent a bone or renal pre-existing condition, which might push us towards wanting to use um, one agent um, or the other, after going through this sort of decision process and all the considerations, I've actually not had any participants or any patient say to me, I still wanna go on FTAF and I'd love to hear others experience about that. I'm gonna move on a little bit as we move into PrEP 2.0 and talk very briefly about the monthly dipivirine ring. Dipivirine is um, a, a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor that was never developed as an oral antiviral. So you probably haven't heard of it as part of HIV treatment regimens, but the observation from the family planning and contraceptive literature that a hormonal contraception vaginal ring was highly um, acceptable um, and effective for family planning raised this notion of whether or not um, a, a ring um, that could be inserted vaginally, um, and these initial ones um, were to be exchanged monthly, um, uh, would be an acceptable, safe, and effective mechanism for delivering topical HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. 
Um, and there were two phase three clinical trials that were placebo controlled that estimated that the efficacy of this product was about 30%. Um, open label extensions and post hoc analyses um, uh, that uh, tried to account for people who took the ring out early or stopped using it suggested that the potential efficacy, if used as, as prescribed, um, uh, might be as high as sort of in the 60% range. So that's kind of exciting. Um, and uh, we're now moving forward, um, looking at non-depivirine containing ring products, additional products, products that contain not only a PrEP agent, but also a hormonal contraceptive, so-called MPTs or multi-purpose technologies that could deliver both interventions through one product and also rings that um, could be exchanged as infrequently as every three months, which would be a tremendous advance um, in acceptability and ease of delivery. This one monthly depivirine ring is also currently before the FDA for US regulatory approval. And I wanna say some of you may be sort of in your minds tempted to dismiss this product by saying 30% in a clinical trial efficacy, I'm not that interested in it. But um, you have to remember that cisgender women, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, have really extraordinarily challenges for a variety of reasons with using daily oral pre-exposure prophylaxis as prescribed. And, you know, and we can talk in the chat or the Q&A about the multiple reasons why that has been challenging for cisgender women to use as prescribed to see those high levels of effectiveness. But so what is better? Something that perhaps doesn't have the potential to get to those extraordinary levels of efficacy, but is actually acceptable and used by the population, or something that has great potential, but people can't, won't, or just for whatever reason, don't use. And it's really an important debate in the prevention space that I think we have to continue to have. I'm gonna spend a fair bit of time in my talk this morning talking about long-acting injectable cabotegravir um, as opposed to some other long-acting systemic agents that are in development because Jean-Michel Molina, who's going to follow my talk, is gonna spend a lot of his time talking about, um, uh, about um, some of these other agents. And I wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to talk about cabotegravir, which I have a fair bit of experience with. So I, I think many of you know that I was one of the lead investigators of the HPTN 083 study, which compared head-to-head -head long-acting injectable cabotegravir, a novel integrate strand transfer inhibitor, um, uh, which is delivered as an every two-month gluteal intramuscular injection compared to daily oral TDF FTC in cisgender men and transgender women who have sex with men. On this um, screen is a, is a uh, a graphic slide that shows the study design. I think most people are aware of this, but I just want to remind everyone that it, there were no placebo arm in this study. Everyone received one active and one placebo product. So it was blinded and it used placebos, but no one received only placebo products. Um, and there was an oral lead-in period for five weeks before people started their injections. Um, and that was to establish the short-acting pill-based cabotegravir tolerability before giving a long-acting injectable that at the time the study was designed, we didn't have a lot of information as to its safety and didn't wanna run into problems with giving a long-acting product that we couldn't then withdraw. These are the primary results that we presented sort of in two tranches. And I'm gonna spend a little bit of time explaining why these results were different. On the top half of the slide was our initial results using a pre-specified HIV testing algorithm 
that just looked at um, a, um, a point of care rapid test and then a fourth or fifth generation antigen antibody test as the screening tool at our clinical sites. And those primary results showed an incidence rate of 0.41 per 100 person years in the cabotegravir arm and 1.22 per 100 person years in the TDF FTC arm. And that was a hazard ratio of 0.34, which means a 66% reduction in HIV incidence in people who got randomized to cabotegravir compared to the TDF FTC. And that was a superiority result. Um, but um, when we went back and we did sensitive back testing using nucleic acid based assays to determine what was going on, it turns out that one of those HIV infections in the cabotegravir arm actually was existing before anybody went on any PrEP agents in the study. So that popped out one of the cabotegravir infections and really didn't change the interpretation very much, but the, the numbers and the incidence rate did change. I'm often asked what we think the background incidence rate was in this population because there was no placebo arm. I can't tell you for sure, but we've done a number of back of the envelope counterfactual analyses that suggest the background incidence in the population may have been as high as 4.8 per 100 person years. And if people are interested, we can talk in the Q&A or the panel about what calculations we did to estimate what that background incidence rate would be. That's only important if you're trying to get the placebo comparative efficacy of this product, because of course an active comparator trial doesn't give you that information that I think everyone really wants. Um, these active comparator trials really just tell you how one agent performed to the other. And one of the biggest questions that I get out of HPTN 083 is, we, we say that um, for rectal protection, daily oral TDF FTC can be as much as 95, 99, almost perfect protection if taken as prescribed. So how can you have a superiority result for this injectable product when TDF FTC performs so well? How is that possible? And the answer, of course, the devil's in the details, is it was as TDF FTC was taken in this study. And this was a very young, highly mobile, highly at risk population who were not very good at taking their TDF-FTC. In fact, by intra-erythrocellular tenofovir diphosphate metrics, only 75% of the study population had um, dried blood spot evidence of longitudinal adherence that would be expected to provide that extremely high level of rectal protection. So when you compare to that kind of use, cabotegravir was superior. It covered the sex act better. So I thought that was a helpful context to provide, hopefully so. Um, when we talk about these cabotegravir breakthrough infections, right, we're talking about 16 of them, and four of them actually weren't breakthroughs because they actually happened at, at baseline. So they predated administration of a PrEP product. I created this little moniker. I gave them letter names. So I called the A cases, ones that were existing before anybody got any PrEP agents. So those aren't really PrEP failures. Right, They happened in the context of cabotegravir administration, but they weren't PrEP failures because no one had taken any cabotegravir yet. But the B cases were people who were given cab, but they didn't really take it. And it had been at least six months and anybody took any of that product. And there we had five of those. They were incident cases. They were PrEP failures, but they were PrEP failures in the context of someone not taking it, not necessarily because the product failed. The C cases that I'll tell you about happened during that oral phase. And to me, that's a warning sign. That's a red light. That's when you have people who that you suspect are not going to do well 
taking an oral pill, don't ask them to take an oral pill. That's a period of vulnerability. Um, and, you know, should we be going direct to inject um, rather than asking people that we suspect are going to do better with an injection to try and do something that we don't think is the right delivery mechanism for them? And then we had four what I call D cases, and these have generated the most interest and most discussion because these were people who broke through cabotegravir prep despite, as far as we can tell, on-time injections and expected plasma concentrations of cabotegravir. So these are the B cases. There are five of them. The conceit here is the green virus emoji um, is the time when um, the, um, uh, the laboratory center um, at Johns Hopkins, who did the post hoc testing for us, identified the infection first. And the red asterisk is when the site, based on that site-based testing algorithm, the rapid and the fourth gen or fifth gen that I mentioned, detected the site. And what you can see here is all of these had long intervals or long breaks after their last cabotegravir administration. So number one, the testing wasn't delayed, site versus the central laboratory testing. Number two, it's not really a surprise that these breakthrough infections happened because the people were not taking um, their study product. What I will show you in B1 and B4 um, really specifically is that we tried to cover, quote unquote, the pharmacokinetic tail as people stopped injections in those two cases with a year of oral TDF FTC and people didn't take it. So again, coming back to this notion of if you think someone's going to do better with a non-daily pill product, don't ask them to continue to take a daily pill product because they're not going to do it. So it's a period of li liability. So we need more information about that. So um, these are the A cases on the top. The C cases and the D cases are also shown on this slide. And I want to quickly point out to you is you see those red asterisks and the green virus emojis for the C and the D and even some of the A cases. That's a delay. That's a delay in identification of that HIV infection using nucleic acid base. So either Aptima, uh, qualitative NAT, or a quantitative viral load compared to the site-based testing algorithm in the green virus emoji. And the D cases on the bottom are the ones that generated the most interest, as I mentioned, because as you can see, despite these on-time injections, people broke through anyway. And the information as to why remains still a little bit mysterious. Let me show you one representative case here in a little bit more detail, and then we'll move on in the interest of time. Um, what this is, is it's a graph over time of the cabotegravir concentrations. Those are the orange dots in plasma. Um, the timing that people got the injections, those are the vertical neon green lines. Um, and then the red line is when the laboratory center at Johns Hopkins, using more sensitive testing, found the breakthrough HIV infection. And the blue line, which is sort of merged with one of the green lines here, I hope you can see it, is when the site detected the infection. So what you can see here is there's an oral period. Somebody, before they take any drug, doesn't have any cabotegravir. Then they have above 8x PAIC90, which is this 1.33 um, nanogram per milliliter, uh, sorry, microgram per milliliter um, uh, level. And then they start to get their injections, and the levels stay pretty high. They never fall below, very much below 8x PAIC90. But the infection ha is detected at the site here at about week 42. And if you look back, it was about 14 weeks earlier that we're able to find evidence of the infection using these more sensitive diagnostics. So why do you care? 
Well, this is what it looks like when you look at the testing algorithms that were done at the site versus at the central laboratory testing. So, um, you, you know, you can see that delay. We did do some sensitive DNA testing that um, helped confirm these earlier time points for, um, uh, for, for when the, the infection actually was there. You could see the site first finding um, the infection at that week 41. Um, the DNA um, was positive seven days later. Um, uh, and uh, again, we've continued to find evidence of a confirmatory antibody test finally turning positive 26 weeks later. But on the right is what happened at the central laboratory. And if you used a qualitative Aptima RNA test, you found it all this way earlier. And you could see that by a single copy assay, it was 6.1 copies per milliliter is the quantitative assessment of that first evidence of that breakthrough. So that's kind of um, provocative. So I just want to tell people here that um, the median delay on the right side of this slide that you'll see um, using the more sensitive viral load based or, or qualitative or quantitative based testing was about 98 days compared to the conventional test standard testing algorithm that we're using. And the median viral load when we first detected it was only about 130 copies. So keep that in mind. I will tell you that this 083 study is continuing on using viral load as part of screening testing to try and identify these infections sooner to see if with these long acting PrEP agents, um, it needs to be done um, as part of screening or um, if it's just gonna send people down a rabbit hole of false positives um, uh, and not actually help us in terms of identifying infections. To me, the number one question that we need to answer is if you find these infections earlier, does it prevent you from getting resistant to your PrEP agent and therefore potentially compromising um, the, um, the subsequent ART treatment? In the interest of time, I just wanna very briefly mention that of course that 083 had a really critical sister study called 084, similar study design, cisgender women, sub-Saharan Africa, 90% reduction in HIV incidence in the women randomized to cabotegravir as opposed to TDF FTC, um, uh, as opposed to the 66% that we had in 083, an stunningly successful result that we hope is lead, gonna lead to regulatory approvals um, across populations. There are future hopes that we're gonna be able to double concentrate cabotegravir, so the injections will be smaller, able to be given in a non-gluteal location and potentially even self-administered. Cab is also being thought about for a microneedle array patch um, for delivery and also as an, um, a biodegradable implant. So stay tuned for more about that. This really lets us expand our concept um, of PrEP to PrEP 2 or even 3.0 and we add in Discover 083 and 084 into this, this, um, this schema. So hopefully that will give us more options. Jean-Michel, as I mentioned, is gonna to talk to you a lot about lenacapavir, a first-in-class HIV capsid inhibitor that's in phase three clinical trials um, for both adolescent girls and young women in the purpose one study, as well as MSM, transgender men, transgender women, and gender non-binary individuals um, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So stay tuned for more information about that. And Merck's Latrevere um, tablet is being developed as a novel NRTTI being studied as a once monthly pre-exposure prophylaxis pill 
again, in similar populations in the Empower 022 and 024 studies, again, in MSM transgender women and cisgender women across the world. I fear, but I suspect that if both agents are shown to be safe and effective, they're going to suffer from the same challenges of detecting these breakthrough infections that cabotegravir is currently struggling with, but that remains to be seen. So as we expand the menu of PrEP agents, this is how I think about it. Our appetizer list includes TAF expanding um, its studies into cisgender women. Will it have a long-term safety advantage? Will it be more forgiving? Um, these topical preparations, vaginally and rectally, and more about cabotegravir. Our entrees are going to be islatravir, lidocapavir, and the need for improved or more sensitive diagnostics. And dessert, I'm going to leave you with um, uh, uh, MABs. MABs are really exciting. They have tremendous potential for efficacy. But do we have an appetite for the complexity of their development, um, uh, given the success of these small molecules? I will stop there. Thank you so much and apologies for running a little bit over. I really appreciate all your attention and happy to answer any questions.